So I admit that uh, I feel a little awkward preaching a sermon like this today. You remember that we have already, we're in a kind of three-part series of shepherds, the idea of shepherds, God sending shepherds. And of course, part one was the, the reality that Christ sent, I mean, that God sent Christ, the chief shepherd. And when he sent him, of course, he, we revealed in him what made him a good shepherd. It was his contagious conviction of the faith, the truth, and the way in which people marveled about that. It was the empathy of his compassion that people responded to. And especially it was that intentionality with respect to a purposeful suffering. That he wouldn't let anything get in his way of suffering what he must suffer. We see it over and over. When, when Ethan Peter, his, his you know, disciple of Christ, his apostle, tried to prevent him from suffering, when he tried to prevent him from going to Jerusalem, you remember Christ's response. Satan, speaking through Peter, get behind me. There is no limit to what he would suffer. But that was part of the plan. How it is that Christ's love and compassion for those he came to save becomes flesh in the world through the suffering of his under-shepherd or his shepherd Christ. And as we'll see, and as we saw last week, even the under-shepherds of Christ. For shepherds, we must embrace the suck, as I said last week, even as it is a means towards authenticating Christ's love for them and directs them to the cross for their salvation. Today, we turn now to those who, and their responsibilities for those whom the shepherds come to. It's for those who are here admonished five times, not one, but five times to receive them, these shepherds, to welcome them, to even suffer with them. And now you understand why I'm a bit awkward. To be clear, I think it's very obvious, even as this passage throughout the centuries has been used to be the very hallmark passage of what we call apostolic succession. This idea that God sent Christ. Christ sent the apostles, these foundational first generation, particularly those who were witnesses of his suffering into the world to build the church. And then how God sent under shepherds under-shepherds who were constantly described as imitating even the apostles, as the apostles imitated Christ, apostolic succession. And so, yes, it's awkward. Because, honestly, it feels like it's, I should be recusing myself at first. Well, Preston, you know, isn't there some self-interest in preaching this sermon? Well, no, not really. Mm, yeah. I mean, no, as God rebukes me for the thought of it, this isn't about me at all. It's about the office. It's about the office of shepherd, without which we know the church won't exist, quite frankly, as it's a vital part of that apostolic foundation. And so, no, how dare I even for a moment assert my person and my personality into a sermon? But yes, it's filled by a person. 
a person that stands before you. This is where I do wish I had the collar, where I would wear the robe or something to say to you, look at the robe, don't look at the man. I say that to you and I know that you've been here for a while, you know I've been saying that for 28 years. That's not a new message. But I just wanna get it out, get it out. Yeah, the fact of the matter is we're, we're, we're committed. I've been committed to expositional preaching since I've been here and that means you let God determine the topic every week and it's amazing how many times, and this might be one of the top ones, my guess is I never, ever, ever would have preached this sermon. I just kind of would have conveniently avoided it because <laughs> it's very awkward, very awkward. I say all this that you might be prepared to not hear me, but to hear the Lord if in so far as I am faithful to the scripture speaking to you. Because your response to under shepherds in succession to Christ is very clearly here in this passage as it will be elsewhere linked to your reception of Christ himself. He will make that case as, as, as clear as you could make it that how you treat your shepherds, you are treating me. That passage, as you do to the least of these, you do unto me, been ripped out of context, but you read it right there today. Wasn't it talking about those least in the world? That is those who are suffering on behalf of Christ for the world. And as you respond to them, he says to you, you're responding to me. And I must preach this because your very soul is at stake. Doesn't he say for the warning he ends with warnings and promises. And for those who don't receive them, it'll be, oh, he says it in the most harsh way you could say it. It'd say it'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. But those who receive them, you will receive the crown of life. And so this is a passage that will actually conclude with my reciting the vow that has come down through this millennia that congregations do take to the office of pastor under shepherd. One that you took here when I came and when the other pastors came. And so this is a sermon on that vow in so many words. With that, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for usurping what I and my human knowledge would have preached. Thank you, Lord, for how this is good news as it restores this polity, this polis of a city of God in the midst of the world and how, how it redirects the way that we would treat those who you have sent as your arm of salvation. We've heard our Lordy Lord, the incredible standard by which you will judge your shepherds. And yet now, Lord, we hear your standard by which you will judge the sheep. We pray all this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, three things, dividing up our passage, you'll see there were some overlay with last week's reading because they, they intersperse each other. But the way in which it concludes is very clear, you'll see. But as we go into the passage, and just basically what should you expect when the shepherds come into your city? Secondly, how you are exhorted then to welcome them and third, there are the warnings and promises attached to it. That's your outline if you're looking for it. First of all, what to expect when God sends an under-shepherd, a true under-shepherd, a shepherd of any type, Christ, 
apostles, but now, of course, under shepherds on behalf of Christ and the apostles as built upon the foundation of the, of the apostles. And here's what he says, verse 34, what to expect? Well, do, you, do not think that I came to bring peace in the world. I did not bring peace, but a sword. Notice the way this grammar works. It is said as if it is acknowledged, it's counterintuitive. Do not think as if what? I know what you're thinking. When an under shepherd comes, there's going to be peace. There's going to be salvation. And indeed, there will be salvation. And there will be some level of peace. But it all is determined by the way he's received. That's the point. Why would they have this misunderstanding that that when the coming of Christ vis-a-vis the shepherds come to the city, why would we have this expectation that that everything's going to change and that there's going to be a great salvation of the city necessarily in that way? Well, I read a passage for you in the Old Testament that is often alluded to. I could have read Isaiah 9, but we read Isaiah 55 where it gives you this incredible vision of the coming of God and a vision that that speaks of incredible prosperity and and, and incredible blessing and and incredible peace and purity and it's all there. Well, see, Christ is clarifying that expectation. They, They kind of forgot to read the other parts of Isaiah in his generation as much as and especially the Christendom evangelical kind of generation we have today, where Christendom thinks so much about nation building and and where Christendom thinks so much about this world, what theologians have honestly and and rightly described as an over-realized eschatology, expecting too much. If you compare it not to what is reality out there necessarily, although that would be anecdotal, but compare it to the scripture. Just look at the scripture over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. The expectation for the church in this age is tribulation. Even if through that tribulation comes the millennial. That is the great prosperous kingdom of God. It's a now not yet tension that we live in. Many of you familiar with that little paradigm. Maybe many of you, it's the first time you've heard it. It's this idea that between the time that Christ ascends into heaven and the time he comes back, this is an age wherein there is a great spiritual battle. And there will be tension and there will be the church, we call it militant. Even if, in a spiritual sense especially, there is also the growth and the expansion of the kingdom of God within the kingdom of this world, And the tension of the two kingdoms is what you're to expect. Even as there will be converts. This is the irony of the gospel, though. Where where was the world converted? At the cross of Christ. The greatest tension of the kingdoms there ever was. And by the ascension of Christ, we know now that Christ is active Ironically, defeating sin, defeating Satan by the suffering of Christ as that suffering now continues in, with, and through the life of the church. 
Again, anecdotally, historically, the church never grows as fast as when it is suffering. Did you know that? So much so that historians will say things like, well, the church was built on the blood of the martyrs. That's true. And so, yes, our passage begins with this very careful, it's not what you're expecting since you've been so conveniently majoring on Isaiah 55 and forgot to read 58 and elsewhere. The sword, of course, was a common metaphor regarding violence and hostility. This particular passage is probably taken from Micah chapter 7 verse 6 and 7. There Micah explains and refers to a time in the coming of the Messiah when there will be a general decline and divisions and dissensions, tribulations in the last days before, before the great deliverance comes. And this is what then he says in verse 7. As for me, I will look to the Lord and I will wait patiently. I will wait patiently for the God of my salvation. Boy, does that preach. Not just now, under a pandemic and under the conflicts and the culture wars, but it just preaches, doesn't it? This is a time for perseverance. That's what it is. Don't think something's wrong. The eschatological plan of God is working. To the degree that we embrace the sect, to the degree that we embrace this incredible call to go into the battlefield, the spiritual battlefield, a battle that's not one with the battles of this world, not with military might, economic might, uh, intellectual might. You could go right through it. It's met by faith. A faith that the world will think is foolish, but a faith that proves triumphant. That was the point, the first point. This understanding of history is vital, do you see? Vital towards having proper expectations today. Clearly, both the reign of Christ within the context of a tribulation is where we live. R.C. Ryle, I'll put it up on the meditation, said it this way. Few things do ourselves so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. People look for a degree of worldly comfort in Christ's service, which they have no right to expect. And not finding what they look for, they are tempted to give up religion in disgust. And then he says, but happy is he who thoroughly understands that though Christianity holds out a crown in the end, it brings also a cross on the way. I mean, didn't Christ say that? Take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, yet, take up your crown. He said, take up your cross, follow after me. And so the shepherds are being sent head first into a great conflict. How would this affect the way those they are sent to ought to receive them? And therefore, we come to the second part of the sermon? The answer is, receive them. Some translations, welcome them. Now, if you're listening, you're going, are you kidding me? I mean, to welcome them is to bring probably harm to me. 
Yeah? It's exactly what Jesus says here. Expect it. Expect it. Five times again, the command, receive, receive, receive the shepherds who were sent. If you look at the use of this particular Greek word and, and, the, and, and, and even following a, a very uh, reputable lexicon like Mounts, there's a little word study that he does for you. I'll do for you real briefly now. He says, let's look at the scripture. This is how you, by the way, do word studies, not by some kind of a root word analysis. Words are always semantic. We look not for the original intent as we import our own lexicon about those, on those words. I mean, the worst thing you could possibly do is to go to the Merriam Dictionary and look up the word receive, at least in the English. Even if you go to the Greek, if it were a root word study, you'd be misled. Now, the way you do it is the way we see good lexicons do it. And it's the way the scripture in all language fits. You go ask, okay, let me see how that word is used in that original day. How, and that in the original tent is always what we're looking for. We want original intention, not literalism. That's the way words work. And so here it is, that semantic range. In some passages, the same Greek word is used to receive by hearing or learning or acquiring knowledge. 2 Corinthians 11, James 1, for example. Other times to receive is to grant them access into your life, to kindly welcome them. To embrace them. Matthew 10, 40, 41, 18, 5, etc. Sometimes to receive is, quite frankly, to offer them hospitality. That is to welcome them in your home and to feed them. To provide for them. Sometimes it's to bear with them. To bear patiently is the same. The word literally is translated in two passages in the Greek, bear patiently. 2 Corinthians 11 and 16. To receive can mean to assent to what they teach or to approve of them insofar as they are obviously following Christ. To approve. And finally, to admit, that is to embrace or to follow. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 2 Corinthians 8, etc. Notice exactly then how Christ does this. In his words, in his scripture, notice verse 7. He pretty much summarizes what I just said. Or maybe he starts it, and that's where it goes, of course. But verse 7, basically it's receive their teaching, receive in their preaching. What does it mean to receive? It's not just to hear it. In fact, we were talking upstairs right before, the session, before we came down here on another related point. But in the Hebrew, to hear is never just to hear an audible. The word hear literally is used to mean obey, to heed, you know, to hear. Not to hear, but to hear. I mean, really, to hear. You see how it's used? And so here we have, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Whoever receives a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. There it is again, this correlation between how you receive the shepherd and how you receive or not the reward of Christ. Clearly here proclaiming the kingdom 
of heaven. That's a significant phrase in Matthew. Don't miss it. The kingdom of heaven is probably the most dominant theme of Matthew. And over and over in Matthew, it is, is made because the emphasis of heaven is meant to draw the contrast, not a kingdom that is built of the stuff of this world. It's a different, it's a, it's a different hip. It's a different hip. It's different. This kingdom comes from a revelation from heaven, not from a revelation or illumination from one another in the world. It is meant to be a pipeline from God's mind to our mind, this thing we call the church and now the kingdom of heaven. And so that's the point. Again, to receive by hearing or learning or acquiring about the kingdom of heaven. Listen to the way this is described, for instance, in the epistles as speaking then to you, those who would respond to their under-shepherds. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and will give an account. I'll, now, again, last week I emphasized they will give an account. You, under-shepherds, will be held to account. We should never forget that. God is not mocked. I don't care how popular you are as a, as, a, as a shepherd. I don't know how convincing you are. I don't know how, whatever the words you want to use. There is only one member of the audience that a true shepherd wants to see stand in ovation. After a sermon, after a talk, after a counseling session, after leading worship, whatever he or she does. There's only one. Everyone else could be standing and applauding. But if my Lord Jesus Christ is not standing and applauding, I've failed. It's done. That's it. And that conviction will stir any true shepherd to a boldness that is not of this world, to a courage that's not of this world, but also to a humility that's not of this world and to a teachability that's not of this world. So I've already said that last week. But today we're looking at the reality of your relationship to that and the grave danger that is upon you if you're the sheep to reject and not to obey. Acts 20, keep watch over, yourself, over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. That's what's on the shepherd's side. I mean, I look at you preaching this sermon and quite frankly, my passage reminds me of what kind of compassion I should have. And the fact that Jesus died for you. He died for you. You're the apple of his eye. He loves you. I mean, try to imagine for a moment, you know, the fear that you had. Maybe you were a babysitter when you were young or you are young and you're a babysitter or, or just think about it when you walk into that parent and, and you can see the parent. What are they doing, you know, as they leave for a date or whatever they're doing and, oh, they're giving instructions. They're saying, do this, do this, do this. And somehow subtly you begin to identify, oh my gosh, do I really want to do this? I mean, these, these people love these kids. I better watch out. 
Well, that's the way every under-shepherd must live and walk. And so that goes to the next part, where he then will go on to say to them how they ought to imitate them. And then he says, let them do this with joy, for that is well with you. See, the idea that Jesus is talking about here, receiving them, is that you, is that you make it easy for them to do this work. That you, and I think as one who fills the office, but as we see in Scripture, probably the most number one thing is, you got, I mean, there's no use in anybody speaking to you unless you give them the benefit of the doubt. Be cynical, yeah. Be skeptical, ask the questions, make it go to the Scripture. But the moment a shepherd loses the confidence of the congregation, he should go. And I know I've vowed to go. You need someone you, you, you trust. And it's your duty to trust those if they're true shepherds. So be careful. That's the point of Hebrews. So the response to their ministry ought to be one of thankfulness and submission for their ministry related to the kingdom of heaven. He says, if anyone will not welcome you, verse 14, or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. For truly, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for that town. Maybe you've read that passage. What's going on there? Why this admonishment, do you think? There are many kingdoms, again, in this world. This particular kingdom over and over again is described as a kingdom not of this world. A kingdom that will be in direct conflict at times with this world. With many other kingdoms. Do you expect your pastor to peddle from the in crowd? Kingdoms and interest? Will you be surprised when your shepherd says things that are honestly out of touch? If by that you mean not according to the conventional wisdom that is peddled within the other kingdom's worldviews? What would this mean to receive their ministry and to welcome them relative to what under shepherds are called to preach, teach, or inspire? It might affect your relationship to the world. Maybe people you love in the world. Remember what's coming next. How it's going to put you at odds with even your mom and dad and brother and sister and sons and children, daughters. This is reinforced in Romans 16.9, Titus 2.15, Hebrews 13.7. To welcome them, he goes on to explain, by your hospitality. He says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is hand, heal the sick, da 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 And then listen to what he says carefully. Maybe you've wondered what this means. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tarnics or sandals or staff, for the labor deserves its food, his food. So whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and you stay there until you depart. Who is the worthy? Well, you have to understand what he just said, don't you? He said to the shepherd on the one hand, as we'll see, I'll talk a little bit in a minute, that you are, to, you are to take a vow of poverty. When you go, you receive your salvation freely. You don't ever offer now your services for pay. That's what he says. It's not a fee-based system. 
You don't do this or that service. You don't do a, you know, a, a funeral or, or, or a wedding, whatever you're doing. And you know that's our policy here. No, this isn't a fee thing. <laughs> you know, that's exactly how the false shepherds of their day were getting rich. He says, I don't want you to take a bag of wealth. I want you to go and depend on those you preach to. That they would receive you. And they will take care of your needs as they need to be taken care of in order that you might stay in that city and must not depart. And then he goes on and says, but what a harsh thing to say. You think, come, come on, really, Lord? But if they don't receive you, they don't welcome you into your home, as an act of judgment against them, wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next city. Now, there's a lot of nuance there. I, don't want you, I just don't have the time to get into all that. But... You see the point he's making now? On the one hand, the pastor is to go without self-ambition, without seeking, you know, uh, personal gain. As as 1 Peter will make clear, tend the flock of God that is under your charge, not for worldly gain, but eagerly. It gets to our motives for going. It's not a career. It's not a job. It's a vow of poverty as a calling to God to be Christ in the city, vis-a-vis filling the office of under-shepherd. 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching. For the scripture says the worker deserves to be paid. Double honor is that reference to not just the receiving of his word and the respect that you give, but you also give them enough to live. It speaks to how we do salaries here. It's not a market analysis at the end. We don't do that necessarily. We try to understand what is the lifestyle of the people and what kind of lifestyle must a shepherd have among the people to have access to them as Christ in the midst of them. And that's how a salary is chosen, more or less, to fit this passage. To welcome him then to the ministry ought to be one of hospitality, providing for them as needed, as was the practice even in the first century. It's interesting, when you took a vow to your pastors here, and as we do throughout the denomination, and as has been true through many denominations, language has come down through the centuries, and here's one of the things that you'll say, that you may be free from worldly cares and avocations. We humbly promise and oblige ourselves to pay you, and it goes on. But notice how it's stated. It's not stated that you might get rich. Of course it wouldn't be. It's not stated, well, it's meritorious, depending on how many people join or how many conversions you have or any of this sort of thing. It's to the degree that you've been set apart by God through his means, vis-a-vis the church and ordination and all that stuff, by all these means of which you participate as a congregation by actually requesting this shepherd to come to you. No Presbytery here imposes one. That's not Presbyterianism at all for this reason. For those, hey, you're just, you've got to just take care of their needs. Why? So they can be in the midst of you. That's it. Simple. And finally, and, and then how, what, what is the call? Third, under the subsection, welcome them by a willingness to stand with them in their suffering. Now, look what he says. Do not think that I came to bring priests in the world. I've already read it. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his brother, etc., etc., 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then here's what he says, verse 40. Here it is. For whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now apply that to what he just said. You know, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, etc. Is not worthy of me? Again, that's, that's a chilling statement, isn't it? For me to consider in the manner in which I treat Christ is going to be measured in the manner in which I treat his under-shepherds? Why is that, you think? Well, wouldn't it be convenient, you know, to have a lofty view of Jesus and stay on the boat and fish all day and never have Jesus speak audibly to them, in particular to them? In particular is related to particular conflicts that are going on in the world. Wouldn't it be nice to keep Christ as abstract and non-flesh and blood as possible? If, cynically, we don't want really his lordship. But if we want his lordship and know that it sets us free unto our salvation, this lordship, then of course we need flesh on flesh, life on life. Shepherding, one that's tailored specifically to a particular congregation every time. I don't know if you know, you might have heard about our church. Some people would describe it as a multi-congregational church. Here within southern Connecticut, we have, what is it, six, seven? CPC blanks, CPC blanks, CPC blanks. If you're thinking that what that meant was that Preston, if you see me as the you know, the whatever, the senior pastor of this one multi-congregational church means that I then go and have seven preaching stations. You've totally missed the conviction of this church. It is the strong conviction of this church and as well as our, you know, our tradition, at least in the broader sense, that every church should have flesh on flesh elders and pastors. Deep conviction that you would have access to the flesh and blood of the person who preaches to you. There's a policy in place in my own ministry here of at least within, with, with, except for exceptional situations where there's a crisis, where there's an emergency or something, that people should have access even, even to me within a week. How big can the church be for that to be true? We'll re-wrestle with that. But that's, that's coming out of this, you see. It comes out of this idea. And so no one has done for you what Christ has done for you. No one. No shepherd could possibly do that. We want to make that clear. He not only suffered with us, he suffered for us, and he not only suffered for us in this world, but he suffered for us in hell itself. No one does for you what Christ does for you in his heavenly intercession. No one will do for you what Christ will do for you in the eternity of establishing heaven on earth. But Christ... Christ took it upon himself to ensure that you had flesh on flesh, life on life in the mystery of this mediatorial, mediated presence by the Spirit from Christ in heaven to Christ on earth vis-a-vis -vis the pastoral office. That is, in, that is carefully choreographed, carefully organized, carefully standardized by the apostolic succession. 
I don't mean just anyone that says, don't, I'm not equating this with the word reverend. I'm not equating this with the world, even ordination, because now ordination's been taken and made into pretty much nothing. But if it's a true sense of ordination, a true sense of laying on hand, vis-a-vis the manner in which Christ did appoint it through the apostolic succession, and we could get into that later, there is a very careful process that requires not only a judgment of the congregation, but a judgment of the peers, of other pastors and elders who should be able to work through their nuances of theology if need be. And so that brings us then to the warning. What's at stake if you do or don't welcome the shepherds who are in apostolic succession to Christ? Again, they are not Christ. They are not the mediator. Christ is. They are under Christ. They are under mediators. Or under shepherds, I should say. So look, he says, let's look at the warning first. If you don't, warning number one, he says, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Wow. That is to say, Christ will reassign his under shepherds if rejected. Now that's amazing. That's amazing. But what does it mean by the peace? If you know the history of redemption, this idea of the peace, shalom, that was what people back in the Old Testament would die to get. They would die to get it. That's incredible when you stop to think about it. They would die to get it. Why? Because it is salvation. It's equated with salvation, as he's already explained in the Sodom and Gomorrah quote. To shake off your dust was a, was a, tech, uh, was a cultural or, or biblical tradition in the way in which you would, and in so many words, you would declare that whatever it is, city, that grand, that territory, as judged. Acts 13, so they took, shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. You can see it again in Acts 18. The implications Christ says in verse 15, again, that was 14. I tell you again, it will be more tolerable for land of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is to say, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust. That is to say, I will take them and the peace that is given at every service and every benediction away from that congregation in so many words. Now, when you stop to think, well, what would that look like? Well, look at the history of churches and the way in which some churches seem to survive hundreds of years and some churches don't. It's happening. It does really happen. When the gospel and the kingdom of Christ is no longer being preached, the peace of God leaves. And at best, it turns into a benevolent society. At best. It's about the gospel. It's about the kingdom of heaven. And you have as much to do with keeping that here as a shepherd would, is what Jesus is saying. There's a responsibility on all of our parts. If we don't love it, then we tempt those who are meant to preach it to honestly be tempted not to love it either because 
they do like to, you know, take care of their family. Even if that would be a wrong thing for him to do. You want the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say this to a church that's going to way outlast me. My years are waning. You know that. Got gray all over the place. I'm saying this message, honestly, for the prosperity of this blessed church. Maybe hundreds of years. It's interesting the churches that really do last, and you still see those things. I think of Park Street up in Boston, a church that I really appreciated while I studied up there and, and even looked at a job offer there. And, 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 you know, there's just some good stuff going. But, yeah, I'm not saying it's a perfect church, all that kind of stuff. But the, what I'm saying is just one, and there are other good churches there, by the way, some of which are in our own denomination. But I think about that church that's been there hundreds of years. There it is in the middle of the city. What you find constant is they're preaching the same gospel today as they did 100 years ago. And they still thrive. What do you know? The peace of God's still there. But we should never take for granted. I said this to my presbytery a year ago. Some of the younger guys heard me say this. We were, I was asked to give a report of a very critical matter. And, and I, you know, I remember just bringing this up and saying, you know, we've all learned a lesson here due to some things that God is no respecter of person. He's no respecter of a congregation. This congregation is nothing unless the peace of God is resting on it. Nothing. There is no favored person, if you mean by that, that can, you know, be given a pass. If, this, if you mean by that, in desiring anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the warning, a very serious warning. But listen to the promise. But if, any, if, if, if the house is worthy, he says, let your peace come upon it. It's not the peace of the personality. Some of you know I, um, I'm, you know, well, I'm basically working on a book. I've been putting it together for some time and and, um, and one of the chapters is a chapter on pastoral theology, and I named that chapter The Priest with No Name. Take that idea after Graham Greene's great novel, uh, what is it, Something in Glory, Dine is the Glory, something like that, I can't remember. And um, it, it, it's powerful because this is not talking about a person. But if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, the peace of Christ as being mediated vis-a-vis the office, the office of shepherd. And then he goes on in verse 39 to say, and you will receive the reward of a shepherd. Did you hear that? That, that day when, you know, sometimes, again, I, the way we celebrate, can you say celebritize? I guess that's the right way to say it. Or make celebrities out of, that's a Christendom thing. You know I don't like Christendom very much. Christendom always makes a compromise with the world to be Christendom. To nation build, you always get screwed. The church always gets screwed on that deal. Always. Historically and biblically, we're told that much. When our whole campaign becomes nation building or nation building and all that stuff, we, we're, we're forming these points of God. Where, where can we agree together and we can do this? And, no, this is to be a church not of this world. A resident alien in the city of the city for the city. Who loves the city. But our greatest, greatest social strategy is the centrality of the church being the church. 
And so you may not receive quite as many rewards on earth. You might not get talked about in the local journal or the local podcast or whatever, but you'll receive the reward of a, of a faithful shepherd. See, again, there's a theory in history, you know, the theory of, of leadership, whatever you call it, the, the theory of great men or women, if you will, the kind of the world changes on the, on the great people that have come before us. And most of our history, if you haven't thought about it, is written like that, as if Martin Luther, you know, was the cause of the Great Reformation or something like that. But if you look a little careful, and as someone who studied a little history, it's amazing how a sociology of the movement changes your mind about that. How you begin to realize that, wow, no, this took a community, this took a city, this took people who as much suffered with their shepherd as the shepherd suffered, and who were willing not to abandon them and to flee them and not to second guess them when it got hard. Even some of our cities, I think it was Plymouth, but and I can't remember, it was a class I took a long time ago, but, but, but how the, the whole, when, when they banished the pastor for preaching the gospel over in England at the time, uh, you know, in a Protestant way, um, how they, they made it really clear, we don't want you to go, congregants. We don't want you to go. He's going to go to America. Get on. He, he's going to go. He's going to leave, but, but not you. We want you. Okay, we want your tax. <laughs> we want your help. But this congregation, I think it's Brewster, I'm not sure. But this congregation said, no, we're getting on that boat. Boy, I can't even imagine how that pastor felt watching that con congregation march up that little pile line into the boat for one of the most scary trips they could have ever taken in their life. You'll receive the reward of a shepherd. Let me list listen carefully in closing how it says it. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even or least of these, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. How many times does Jesus need to say it? This battle isn't a battle of great men or women. It's a battle of congregations. If I've said nothing today, that's what I want and pray you to hear. It's not the evangelist, Billy Bob. It's the evangelist, the church, the local body of Christ that is the evangelist in a city. If you're expecting a man or a woman to save this city, you are truly misunderstood or standing. It's a congregation who labor together, who pray for each other, who stand with each other. Yes, who suffer with each other. That God sees and the anointing of the peace of the Holy Spirit descends upon that congregation like upon the temple of God they become a light, a powerful light in the midst of darkness. Do you believe that? Do you believe what I just wrote to you, read to you? 
you'll receive the crown. It's not going to be your hero pastor or your hero saint of old. I know it's not going to be Luther up there getting this wonderful, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, maybe Luther will hear it. Maybe Paul will hear it. But as even they make clear, those who will be standing within them hearing it will be all those who received them. They will hear it too. Well done, good and faithful servant. We've got to have a more communal and corporate understanding of our identity as Christians. This isn't this raw individualism story. This is a story of a people, of a family, of a community. The narrative of redemptive history is your narrative as much as it is any shepherd leader's narrative. The division in this world reflects a division in the world to come, in other words. Did you hear it again? Those who find their life in this world will lose it in the next life, and those who lose their life in this world will find it in the world to come. There is a division in the next world that mirrors the division in this world. The least of these, again, I've said it last week, but don't, if you weren't there, you didn't hear it. Clearly, he's not talking about babies. He's not talking about, you know, other kind of people, poor people, people who are least in the world, though we should all love them, okay? That's not my point, of course. I just don't want you to miss the point here. The point here, the least of these is those who are least in the kingdom of God in terms of their suffering, who are most weakened, who are most attacked, who are most, you know, second doubted or whatever. Those least of, those quote unquote least of those as you receive them, and the context he's been talking about is as you receive your prophet, your righteous person in office, if you will, your shepherd leader. Revelations 2 says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. It's a reward mentioned over and over again. A prophet's reward is a congregation's, prophetic congregation's award is what he's saying. And of course, that brings us to eternal life we endure until the end when the kingdom will one day, really it will, one day, the pieces of property you know as New Haven, the, the sound that you know as the Long Island Sound, that will be a, a territory, a real, physical, literal territory and every other piece of land that's on the stre- and water that's on the stretch of this earth, all of it will be under the explicit lordship of Jesus Christ, of which we will be given and restored to the Edenic, uh, given a dominion over it on his behalf, ruling it with love and mercy, justice and mercy, as commanded to do throughout Scripture. That's our destiny. If we'll just hang on. If we'll just stay true, that's what he's talking about when he says to you will be the reward of a prophet. It's the crown. It's the crown of being restored to the Imago Dei, to your status as a royal priest. That you, the church, you are now militant royal priest insofar as you follow Christ, and you will be really 
That's that idea of sharing with Christ in the rule. That's what he's talking about. You ever saw that? Oh, I can't go on that right now. The time's out. That is so cool what he's saying, and I've heard it so misunderstood. Let me close with this quote. The church, Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven, being on sufficient grounds, well satisfied of the ministerial qualifications of blank, and having good hopes from our knowledge of your labors and your ministrations in the gospel, we were profitable to your spiritual interests to, do, to earnestly call you to undertake the pastoral office, that's pastor words shepherd, in said congregation, and promise you in the discharge of you all proper support, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord, that you may be free from worldly cares and avocations, and therefore we hereby promise you, and he goes into the stuff, um, during the time of your being and continuing the regular shepherd or pastor of this church. I felt awkward. I pray you can hear it, not from me, Preston Graham. My journey's almost done. And don't read into that. I'm not planning to leave anytime soon, relatively speaking. I don't know. That's not the point. It's just not. It's if I take this scripture seriously, the life and death and the future of glory as given to us by Christ in this passage is what's at stake. Will we persevere? Amen.